Hello, and welcome to uh, the very first episode of the Geeky On podcast. Um, not really the inaugural episode, because we had a sort of point one uh, that we released uh, just earlier. That's just like an intro, it's an introduction to what the podcast is and what it's about, but it's not a real, you know, it's not a real episode. This is our first interview, it's the first example of the format that we're going to be using uh, with Mike Drack, who is... Awesome. Such a cool guy. Uh, he is a writer. Uh, he does animation. He does video games. And uh, recently, he's uh, executive director at Nine Story Entertainment, which is very cool. That's an animation studio uh, here in Toronto. Um, so... What, you, what we have coming up is uh, an interview with him and I. Um, now, you can check in the notes, uh, and as well, at the end of the show, I'll be just sort of recapping um, information for getting in contact um, for all that. But, um, yeah, that, that, that'll all be covered. Uh, and one last note I wanted to point out, the uh, music, the intro music that'll be coming right after this is actually uh, compliments of a guy named uh, Bitwise Operator. And uh, I just wanted to plug his album because uh, he was gracious enough to let me use it for free. Um, it's Samurai Hack, and you can find it on Bandcamp. Um, there's notes on the first, the, the point one episode, but there will be notes on how to, to check that out at the end of this and in the notes as well. All right? So, um, yeah, here you go. Without any uh, further delay, Mike Drack. Now we are we are on till the break of dawn, though not really because I mean you've got like an hour. That's you know to be reasonable. Yeah, last time was forty five minutes. That's true, and that was good. And yeah, we uh, that was a great great interview that didn't get recorded, which you know, <laughs> learning experience I suppose. This one will be even better. Yes, it will. So let's let's kick it kick it off. We've got Mike Drack here. And uh, he is a writer for television and, and video games. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a screenwriter. I, I was a staff writer for a company called March Entertainment for m most of my career uh, doing this kind of thing. Focused on kids' TV uh, or youth entertainment. Mostly 2D comedy or some 3D action-adventure kind of stuff. And I also worked on a few games. Some of them were just in-house games to promote our own properties. And one of them was an indie game that was moderately successful with just a couple jackass friends of mine called Forum Wars. We might talk about that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that later because that one's like... That was a very cool, weird sort of... Almost like an experimental sort of game. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and that was, that was really interesting and I was actually kind of curious about that. But uh, yeah, you were saying like your, your career with March Entertainment. How long have you been writing now like as a, as a you know, TV writer? I'd say about 10 years now. Huh. 
So uh, my background is in journalism. You know, writing was honestly the only thing I could ever do well. Um, you'll probably hear that. Yeah, I think a lot of writers would probably say that. You know, it's like it's it's like you you end up a writer because you're not fit for anything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like um, I have soft, smooth, you know, not particularly <laughs> strong hands. Uh, I never really uh, built anything. I was never that handy. But as far as writing, you know, I think I'm pretty competent, and I did well in English class, and I got some really good feedback from an English teacher who was extremely influential to me. That's Elspeth Reed, who went to Thornley, uh, she taught at Thornley, rather. And uh, I just got interested in in books, writing, nonfiction, fiction. I never really thought of myself as writing for TV or movies, but... I kind of made my way into it through a back door. Yeah. I can give you that story. Yeah, yeah, like, let's talk about that, because, I mean, you know, everyone kind of has their own sort of breakout sort of story. So, like, did you ever at any point really gun to be a, like, fiction writer or, like, you know, like a creative writer, I guess? Mm -hmm. Or, like, what was your sort of career path before you got into TV writing? Uh, you know, just throughout, uh, like, high school, for instance, I did like writing short stories, and I did pretty some good ones and uh, I wrote all kinds of notes for myself uh, for ideas I want to do later including for video game design that was something me and my friends like when we were too young to drink we would go to like second cup and just hang out and just talk about wouldn't it be cool if we could do like a computer game that did this this and this and and one of my best friends Robin Ward who is a uh, co-creator of Form Wars he was part of this whole thing uh where it was his idea to create something. Uh, I never thought that would translate into anything, but it turns out it did. Uh, so short stories, some poetry, and uh, and I guess I was interested in journalism. I always loved music journalism, uh, particular criticism, like Rolling Stone. That was what I always wanted to write for. That was like your dream job was like get be a writer for Rolling Stone. Yeah, just like Cameron Crowe, you might say. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I I just have this anthology of. Rolling Stones best of you know essays and I'm like this is great stuff uh, but you know it occurred to me that uh, all the best rock and roll writing was in the 70s and for a damn good reason so as I was going through journalism school this was I graduated um, in like year four it, the first day of school was September 11th wow you know 2001 and uh, that was pretty much the day traditional journalism uh, started its death knell. So those mm-hmm. bastard terrorists not only took down the twins, <laughs> but they also screwed our burgeoning media career. They're taking our journalism. Because all these bloggers were like, hey, I can publish this news, like, right away. That's that's a good point. I mean, like, I always, see, I always sort of saw it as being, like, Twitter and, and Facebook being the when that started to happen. But really, 9-11 was probably the first major event where it wasn't just, like, outlets in the news, although that was obviously where most people were getting the information, but that's when people started to sort of give their own perspective, and that's now, that's the biggest problem with, I think, journalism now, is that now it's not about you know, high-quality journalism, it's about, you know, the who's the fastest to blurt out something, right? Yeah. Think pieces, I think, is what they call them, and, yeah. and that's its own uh, category. Well, anyway, I, long story short, I, um... I realized right then and there that mm, I'm entering into uh, into an industry that might not have as much of a future as I thought, and we didn't necessarily learn the skills that some of the 
the youngsters do today. Like we were working on, you know, tape based machines. You know, yeah. we were gluing stuff together. We didn't learn even maybe a bit of HTML, but hardly any web writing. Anyway, third year uh, business writing assignment for the magazine Stream. I was to talk to a local entrepreneur. Turns out the boss of my buddy Robin uh, was this guy named Daniel Haas, who was my once and future boss and owner of March Entertainment or CEO. He uh, he was running a place called Infopreneur, and this was a downtown sort of uh, one of those dot com bubble type businesses where they make right. web applications, sites, and all kinds of cool stuff for pretty big corporate clients. I met the guy, we kind of hit it off, and they happened to be making a show called Chili Beach. This was back since like I think ninety eight or something like that. I'll have to check my dates, but right. they had a very successful flash comedy yeah. show of like pure you know Canadiana pure Canadiana kind of humor but it was like it was good it was it was a funny show um, yeah and it ran for a few seasons like how long did well Chili Beach it eventually for? made it to the CBC and they touted it as right sorry yeah yeah so it wasn't originally on the CBC it was on just chilibeach.com or something like that so it was like oh okay yeah it was like webisodes kind of a thing but yeah. probably before there were really webisodes right yeah people didn't really I don't know if they used that term back then maybe they did yeah, I know. Like, I, yeah, I mean, there was web content, but like web, I don't know, webisodes is almost like kind of a very current buzzword. It's, it's yeah, not something you see a lot. You really heard a lot before, but you know, the the idea is like has existed for a long time. You know, like mm-hmm. web based media, and like so, yeah, there were cartoons that you on, can. just on online that they had posted. Just online, uh, they were quite popular. I, I think you know, millions of views. For really? Eh? Uh, yeah, it was popular. Just you know, because it was. Cause it was it was it was uh, a nascent thing like you know yeah. you couldn't see I'm not gonna call it high quality because it was incredibly crude animation but yeah. you know they lip synced and they had sets and multiple characters and it was really funnily written and it was kind of edgy because yeah. it was for the web so you know it's polar polar bear mauls the <laughs> citizens at the end of every episode and people love that uh, so when I interviewed the guy uh, this guy Dan Haas you know I felt like we I shadowed him a bit we kind of hit it off and they had a cool studio downtown I was just like boy it sure would be cool to <laughs> you have a job in a place to like this there, here. mister. And he, uh, he took not a look. Not so subtle hints you were dropping there? Yeah. I mean, I I was pretty shy, you know, like 20 years old or something, but or 19 years old. But, right. you know, not so shy that I didn't think I should say something. Say right? something. And he took a look at my portfolio. So I wrote for the Eye Opener, which was the school paper, the student paper at Ryerson. Uh, and I used to write kind of like some humor columns. Some of them were a bit edgy in nature. Some, Honestly, some of it's the best shit I've ever written. Like to this day, I'm like, wow, I, I really like was allowed to go far. Because, you know, it's student it's, humor. Yeah, exactly. There's not too much to hold you accountable. And, you know, it's not a, it's not a huge audience. So it's not like you're going to ruffle too many feathers. And those college kids, they don't get offended easily. This oh, is true. Maybe now they do, hmm. but during this this time around the two thousand, uh, it was impossible. We would really we would go out of our way to put uh, controversial stuff, and wouldn't even send in a single letter. Wow, we had to fake them. Like I am very angry at this. That's <laughs> funny. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that that happens. That's funny, but. Uh, yeah, so I mean, so he read stuff from that, I guess? Yeah, that was mostly my portfolio and a bit of journalism, and uh, I think he 
he thought it was good enough to sit in the sales office and be like a staff writer. I would do mostly just looking at like sales pitches and, and editing for grammar and stuff like that. Do a little research, do a little tech writing, uh, you know, a bit of web copy for some of these apps that we're building for people. And to tell you the truth, uh, it was a uh, it was an internship. Yeah, summer internship, very low paying, and and no one thought like I was going to. Uh, accomplish much but when he gave me a chance to write a few web shorts for these yeah. cartoons I took that job with gusto and did lots of research and lots of revisions and timed it and I was like and he liked it he thought it was funny stuff fortunately this is a man with terrible taste and, uh, <laughs> and he thought like hey this guy's good so I finished school I did work in journalism I, I toured Europe for about six months I, I bummed around and did all kinds of bullshit the sort of like the typical college kid in his like early 20s well I was lucky like, enough to not have a ton of debt uh, I was really lucky and, but I, I I really slummed it while I was out there I'm talking yeah. dumpster diving type shit wow <laughs> I did not eat out of a dumpster anyone say <laughs> As far as yeah, as far as you know, as far as the record is concerned, yeah. let the record show that you did not, in fact, <laughs> literally eat out of a dumpster. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, I put it onto a plate first. <laughs> so, um, that uh, you know, um, my man Dan calls you liked me the stuff, and so he kind of he kind of kept. They you, sold kept the show. Going. Oh, they sold the show. The CBC. It's a legendary story. They they came with a, with a box full of Tim Hortons donuts, and I believe a. A pack of Molson Canadian, and they said we want to take this show from the interwebs to. Uh, we're going to show it like right before, right after The Simpsons, and that's where yeah. the slot was. And uh, when that happened, Dan, being a very loyal kind of guy, you know, sure we hired all kinds of freelancers, but he sat me down and said, uh, "Yeah, I want to offer you a job." And I was like, cool. And it was just like an in-house writing job. So I did not do a hell of a lot of script writing. In fact, I had never done script writing. I had to learn movie magic and eventually final draft and learn like how yeah. the actual industry the, those, works. Yeah, the, the software standards and like the, yeah, the, the format standards of the, of the medium. Yeah. And getting the voices right and getting the, yeah. the arc right. Cause I didn't, I hadn't read a story by Mr. McKee. Yeah, McKee's story. The yeah, so I was learning writing. on the job. Yeah. But what I did also do is I used my J school background to, I did all their PR, I did a lot of their web writing, bios for all this stuff, you know, corporate communications, doing stuff like a little bit of marketing, a little bit of, uh, oh, I don't know, anything that needed writing. So Newsletters. You're like, you're like the jack of all trades writer. Yeah. Had, right? Like... And that's I love that you know uh, that's because well, that's kind of you can cool, make yourself useful. Yeah, that's a cool position to have because I mean you know it's not necessarily always the most you know creatively engaging kind of writing, but you're exercising you know technical like skill sets and, and adapting to different sort of uh, formats, right? Yeah, and that's that's actually an interesting. I think that's an important skill for a writer because uh, you know there's a lot of people that you know sort of can only write for a particular medium. They only feel comfortable writing for TV or writing for film or something like that mm. and I don't think that's so much about the kind of storyteller you are as it is to, to do with the, the comfort of the format right like yeah. if you understand how to write like a half hour script and that's all you ever do suddenly writing a two hour com like you know like an hour and a half like film the comedy or something it's gotta be terrifying because it's yeah. like I don't understand how to pace this properly and all that but that doesn't mean you can't do it. It's just you have to understand the different rules that apply or, like, the different structure that, that goes into that, right? Exactly. So, I mean, yeah, it's got to be handy. And I'm sure that 
is partially why you're able to do other stuff. I mean, like you you've written for video games. That's a mm-hmm. very that's got to be a very different format. It was quite different. I mean, to me, a lot of the fundamentals are always going to be there. It's just how it looks on a page. Right. And I was we didn't have any proprietary game writing software. I've never even seen anything really uh, that good because you know the studios protect their own IP and their own uh, yeah. software. Like I mean, as someone that's almost sort of, like just sort of more curious than really gung-ho about trying to break into the video mm-hmm. game industry as a writer. Um, I've just seen, like, stuff here and there. I mean, like, there is, there are, like, sort of software kits that you can, that you can use that sort of, I think, uh, it's almost more like they sort of have a better workflow. Yeah. But it's not, like, there's no one way to go about it, especially because video games are something that's, you can start with nothing but code, like, you know, code and build from the ground up if that's what, how you want to go about it. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways to make a video game now, which is really weird. Yeah, usually, you, I mean, if it's indie, you're going to bootstrap it somehow. A lot of times the programmer themselves will do right this scratch, test yeah. and maybe ask someone to, to take a look at it. I, I like. Have you seen uh, the indie game The Movie? Oh, that's one of the best docs I've ever seen. It's it's a brilliant documentary, but it's really cool because, you know, seeing them profile those different indie game uh, makers, it's cool to see that they all have a very different, like, they're all different personalities, and they all just have a very, sort of a different way of going about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, a lot of those guys are people that just work from the ground up, which seems terrifying to me. I mean, that, that building, like, from just literally nothing but an idea, and then building up all that framework but I suppose that's kind of what you guys did with Forum Wars yeah um it's exactly I can I yeah, was like, just telling a, a friend of mine how I got into this Forum Wars thing so I'm happy to reiterate because talking about myself is uh, something I love to do because no one else that, is going to do it for that works out well for us today for a podcast yeah. uh, I was, <laughs> I can tell you a little bit about how Four Wars got started and how I, I got to write for it and any quirks about the actual writing itself. Yeah. If you guys want to. Well, yeah. and like, let's let's kind of set up first by talk, saying what kind of a game Four Wars is. It's it's kind of unique. It's it's a web-based game. It's a browser-based game. Uh, it's a satirical, primarily text-based, but some graphics and a bit a few cutaways. Uh, satirical... MMORPG, but it's more single player yeah. than an MMO. It's actually like some of the interface is uh, is based on something like Warcraft, World of Warcraft. Really, but the actual you know milieu are forums like web forums, yeah, or instant messaging uh, windows, or email windows, or chat windows, stuff like that. Which you know, to to anyone younger listening, might not know is how the internet used to work. Yeah. <laughs> it's like forums well, used yeah. to be like, you know, the way that you would kind of communicate with, you know, angry strangers about the things you like. It's or just still, anything. It's still like a it. big thing. Like, I know forums still exist. It's considered passe compared to stuff like Facebook. I mean, yeah. stuff or, like Tumblr, stuff like Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Tumblr is, in a lot of ways, I feel like what what has replaced the forum. Or even just like, um, just comment sections in general, which, like... It's kind of horrifying that the the forum as a sort of concept has been largely replaced by the comments. Yes. On things because 
dear God, comment sections are just... It's where, like, the scum of the earth come to inhabit together. Like, Yep. I mean, if you <laughs> well, if you ever yeah. feel, like, a little bit too confident in terms of how well we're doing as a, as a species, mm-hmm. you know, just go read some comments anywhere, especially YouTube. Just, just hit YouTube. Yeah. Watch a video and start scrolling down, and then you just start seeing, like... You know, fag. You know, like, <laughs> like your mother's uh, fucking slut. All this shit, and then you're just like, okay, yeah. Now I remember why, like, we suck. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, our we call our game a troll playing game. Yeah. And uh, I feel like I got a lot of insight into that kind of mindset over time, and and it even changed my perspective and and what I was trying to do with this. Like we were, it is a troll playing game where you are trolling or flaming forms as one of different class archetypes: troll, cam whore, emo kid, hacker, or a noob. Yeah. Uh, perma noob is what we call it. If uh, that's the challenge class. Yeah. It's just that uh, in the end, like I. I don't know if these are people who necessarily are into trolling. Like, we're kind of making fun of those people. Yeah. I mean, but there were a lot of trolls who played our game. Really? I, oh, God, yeah. How could you tell? Like, I'm, I'm curious. Well, uh, <laughs> I my head has been photoshopped onto gay porn more times than I <laughs> care to admit. Uh, that's that's fantastic. We had I mean, people, like, in a terrible way. It's almost... In a way, it's kind of flattering that that would happen. It is, and I think it's cute, but it, the thing is, there's so much... It's so anonymous, yeah. and you don't know exactly who you're dealing with or why that... Basically, people would come in to troll or to play trolls, and you, yeah. it's hard to tell the difference between the two, but people would also do things to see what they could get, get away, away with, which is... That's always a to me. That's a good like. That's a sign that you're making a good game because if you can get people so engaged with what you've made that they're trying to push the boundaries and find the walls, that means that you've made something interesting enough that they're actually really in, engaged. Like, yes. If if you're making something that all they do is they follow the corridor that you've kind of set in front of them, then it's like, yeah, okay, you've you've accomplished what you set out to do in a sense, but you haven't created that. You haven't captured their imagination enough to really make them want to explore it. That's true. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's actually kind of cool. So I mean, I it guess it's a cool problem to have. Yeah. Yeah. So what people were basically kind of trying to break the game. Uh. Oh yeah. Uh. Well, the, this keep in mind this was five years ago when our forums were really active. Now they're almost dead, and everyone knows it. And that's kind of how I like it right now because I don't have to moderate. Did it? Did it get brought up at like five years? Ago? Is that when it kind of launched? It launched, actually, like, we started in 2006, but I think it okay. launched in early 2007, okay. if I'm not mistaken, and that was, like, just, like, a beta kind of thing. And then, uh, over the years, we released more chapters or episodes, and, uh, really, it was, uh, 2010 when we basically went to total maintenance mode. So, a good three years of, uh, of work. Not all full-time, but I worked on it for about a year writing. It's a, there's a lot of tax, man. It's, it's yeah, like, I mean, it's huge. How, how long... You said you can actually kind of technically beat the game, right? You uh, Yeah. Like, yeah, like there is an end know. game to it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> there is an end game. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it, so... It, it could take takes, a month. If you cheat, like, you can get it done probably in a, a couple weeks, or maybe even a week or so, but uh, if you play the game, holy shit, it could take a month or more. That's, like, that's a huge scope. Like, that's a big prop, a project to invest yourself in. Like, yeah. Like, how long did you spend, like, writing that game? I, I took about a year off of work, not all, like, piecemeal, like, maybe four months at a time. 
and this was during good times like for me to do such a thing because you know in animation there was a bit of lols like uh, not lols but you know a lol yeah. well there's lols and then there's lols yeah so there's, there's both, really. <laughs> uh, and then I'm like well listen if you're going to put me on part time why don't I make myself really part time and work two days a week or one day a week and the rest of the time I'll work for four wars or I'll work weekends I'll work evenings I'll uh, work holidays you know it just you finagle the time and I loved working on it so much that it was always a treat when I'm like okay now this is my world I'm gonna spend every waking minute worrying about like filling out all these empty uh, you know forms basically we have to describe 150 new items that relate to this class you know wow. or these forms we have to have like conversations with all these characters. See, it's crazy because on a bigger game, like, they would have all of that, like, garbage like that, that kind of, like, minutia, and they would just sort of schlep that off to, like, low man on the totem pole, right? Like, yeah. the guy, the game designer, when they're doing a big game like that, they never have to do all that stuff. They, they just, like, they're like, okay, this is a thing that needs to get done. Someone needs to do that. But yeah. They're, like, looking at the bigger picture. But you have to, you have that big picture you had to take care of and then you had to do all of the minutia uh, not all of it it was a, a team effort uh, oh really so the you... founders uh, main three guys plus a few other people would pop in they, they helped me with the writing then after a while I started to do these Sunday morning uh, creative meetings here in this building that we're in in the boardroom and I brought in the funniest friends I know and yeah. I guess I bribed them with coffee maybe I don't know and then, then we started to crowdsource a lot more yeah. And the third episode is actually very highly crowdsourced to the point where I had about 25 users writing for us and vying for, like, the top position. Yeah. So there were all kinds of awards and cash, like real cash. We paid people and in-game uh, rewards as well. So was the game sort of live when you were at that point where you were, um, like, crowdsourcing that writing? Yeah, so, like, that was already, like, when we were so successful. Sort of, yeah, so it was like a meta process and that, like, people are playing the game and building it at the same time. That's what we always wanted to go for. We had this whole thing, item builder and forum builder, yeah. and, uh, and and people made fun of it, like, dude, you're crowdsourcing everything. Are you, are you going to crowdsource someone to wipe your ass for you, like, uh, <laughs> after you have a dinner? Like that, that part wasn't successful, No, but and, <laughs> and everyone made fun of us, and like, you guys are lazy, you want us to do all the work, but to tell you the truth, it was a Herculean effort yeah. to get all the... And there tend to be youngsters, they have... They have lives, believe it or not. They have better things to do. They're not necessarily motivated if you say, like, you can get, you know, 35 bucks if you give me uh, yeah. one of these things. But some of these people did fucking amazing jobs. And I discovered some awesome writers in the process. And they come from all, like, mostly the United States, but yeah. all over the world and, and different kind of backgrounds. I got to know who they are. And uh, and they just they nailed the humor. And if, if the humor wasn't quite what we were going for it's that's cool because that's a different mission that's a different character that's a different yeah. task and uh, they came with their own biases and point of views and like created some timeless I think and it's a shame because the game does cost money to play and to progress and people do get fatigued because there's so many rules there's so many complicated aspects to yeah. it like a newbie can't just pick it up which is one of those things where it's like uh, I mean that that appeals to a certain type of gamer, right? I mean, like, yeah, uh, that's that's sort of the hardcore core gamer appeal. And you know, if anyone who actually visits that site, you'll learn pretty quickly that it's like, it's 
it's not a you know casual game as when you know yeah. like it starts about. off like that a little bit and then, yeah, yeah then you realize you gotta juggle a few different things yeah there's a lot of stuff that you have to do in that game and I, I mean, just that's cheat. super cool I just use the cheats well that works too you can pay five bucks and, and make it so you don't have to worry about your, your health oh really oh yeah and that's what I recommend and in fact if you uh, do sign up for four wars and you want to play and you're liking it and you don't want and you don't have any money, yeah. just uh, say you heard about it in this here podcast and uh, just send me a message. Yeah, and I'll hook you up. Cool. And you know, for anyone listening right now, uh, we will get you know like your like Mike's contract. <laughs> sorry, uh, contact info at the end of the podcast. That's awesome, though. Yeah, well, you can you'll hook people up with sort of a some yeah, sort of discount of, promo or something. No, just freebies. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So they call them brownie points. That's our in-game currency. It costs cash, and you. But uh, um, I, no one's gonna get mad at me if I give away a few brownie points to the listeners, because uh, I, we want you to play this game and stroke my ego. And there you me go. I don't know. <laughs> I, I love it when people play the game. That's that's all I care about. You know, yeah. just to me, if like, oh hey, a new person signed up, I'm like, that's great. <laughs> but we have about 250,000 signups over all these years. That's pretty good. Most that's of actually, that was in the first couple years. So yeah, trickle down. I mean, that's like decent like playership over a period of time, especially for an indie game. Yeah. Uh, I have to ask, I'm curious like um from a monetization perspective, like how did you guys find it in terms of like it making you money? Did it was it sort of a loss? Was it really more of a passion project? Did you actually make uh, a little bit of money out of it? At first, purely a passion project. We had a donation Nation bin. Right. We didn't think anyone would, uh, but they did. People actually gave us money uh, just because they liked the. It was uh, it was almost like they're paying for the preview and to, to right. keep us encouraged. So when we made our first like I don't know fifty hundred dollars, we're like, oh shit, this is pretty cool. We're gonna have to institute a monetization scheme. Uh, you know, we made some mistakes, and some things were more popular than others. But uh, without giving much, too much away, basically. The time I spent working on it, I mean, the hardcore hours I, I crunched. Yeah. And I worked on this like, you know, you go into overtime to work once in a while, and you don't always get paid for it. Sometimes you just stay late because you... I, I worked like crazy hours, like sometimes where I was sweating, you know, yeah. at the end of the night. I feel like I was compensated for the time I spent... If it, but if it was like a low paying job, yeah, so it's, like, <laughs> it's not like yeah, you, it's not like your, uh, you know, like the like your creativity wasn't necessarily wholly rewarded, but like for the for the man hours you put for in, the you man hours I put, I feel, or the contribution I made yeah. because like, and also like you could argue, look, the guy who programmed it, he did ninety eight percent of the programming. He on the market he's worth three times as much as I am and he didn't take that kind of pay he was no. very modest about it he said fuck it we'll, we'll pay each other yeah. we'll pay ourselves because we're founders and we're producing it and, and I was dealing with yeah customer service yeah. <laughs> and stuff like that <laughs> be, uh, be, yeah like the yeah, well, that's the thing with a small company or a small thing like that. You kind of have to pick up a few different jobs, and yeah, I guess you took some of the more undesirable ones. Yeah, <laughs> so we 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 pay ourselves what we could. I mean, minus expenses, and there weren't yeah. huge expenses, fortunately. And uh, we paid our contemporaries as best as we could. Like if people came to meetings or they were a shareholder, because we did actually have shares and everything. We if we had a bonus at the end of the year, we we're like we're going for a steak or something like that. And that's going to be a <laughs> yeah. nice dinner and. And we also paid our contributors. I thought like we had a pool of money, right? 
a few thousand bucks here and there and, and I, for some of these people I think it was like it was a nice little sexy bonus to have like well, yeah. for something they would have done for free yeah which is I mean that's super cool and it's funny now considering how many like games there are out there and stuff like that where community co- contribution is a big part of the game model now I mean like you look at something like Little Big Planet yeah. where like yeah. that game is what it is not because of the levels that exist when you you know buy the game but what the you know the community builds, which is insane. Like, yes, that game is a really cool game because you can play insane stuff that you wouldn't have thought you could even do like with the framework, especially the second one, Little Big Planet Two. Like people right. just made uh, like all kinds of different types of games out of it. You could yeah, yeah, so it's brilliant. And no one gets paid to do that. They just do it because they like the game and they they would have done it anyway. Um, so it's cool that you actually would throw some money at your you know like at your audience that was contributing. I, mean, I, I felt that's you know as a writer myself, I guess like I like the idea of a buyout. You know what I mean? Like I. We had contests, all kinds of contests where people did stuff for free or for virtual prizes, but I wanted to offer some cash just because I felt like even though some people aren't necessarily motivated by cash, it's, uh, I just felt they ought to get something for it because if I was, if I was a writer and I was like 17 years old and I was doing this kind of thing, I would, I would have loved someone to pay me for something I've written. I think that that's a really like, intri- like that's a good point. I mean, that's a very motivational thing. That's a really good feeling when someone's willing to pay you for your work. Uh, like as a writer, like at, and like especially in a young age, you really feel like, hey, maybe there's there's something in this. Uh, maybe yeah. I can actually do this, even if it's only like you know. 20 bucks or something like yeah. um, one one book about writing that I'm, I'm really keen on which is Stephen King's like on writing oh yes he, it's more of a autobiography in a lot of ways but one thing he talks about is like when he was really early and started out and he was getting rejected all over the place he would pick up like you know we would write for the paper like local paper or something and they would give him like maybe 10 bucks an article or something like that and he would <laughs> take it gladly like it's it's you know it's a pittance but just to get paid to do that thing that you love to do is it's very like you know it's motivational like you said but um that that could send me down a whole tangent which i will get into but one thing i want to talk to before we move on to that actually is with you know the monetizing of the game what did you you guys find work because i'm i'm sure people listening to this there are going to be people that are kind of more indie minded and maybe want to create their own Mm -hmm. game and they're wondering how they could make money at it did you try like freemium models where you had like pay as you go things or did you want it like did you think it made sense that like did you consider a one shot payment like Mm -hmm. for the game like what was your process in terms Uh, of figuring out what was the best way to make some money off of the game uh it's a good question and uh it is a freemium game because you play for quite a while for free yeah you can play the first like chapter essentially for free and that's a lot of gameplay that will get you hooked um we offered uh it was Built on, you know what really influenced it was uh, was the something awful forums. If you're familiar <laughs> with those, you can do stuff like change your avatar, but it costs a bit of money. Right. You can prank someone's avatar or the custom message underneath them, and that costs a little money. And we always threw in a freebie. We were lucky enough that we had a combination of gamer geeks yeah. who were quite opinionated. My man Robin, who is the uh, the programmer, yeah. who is really mathematical was able to look at stats and see what people paid and how much and what they'd be willing to pay. And right. also one of my other best friends, uh, this guy Richard Ng, who's in town from New York City this weekend or this week, uh, he's, a, he's a stats guy and a, a marketing 
uh, Wunderkind. Yeah. And he kind of helped us do some pricing out models for saying, like, okay, this is how we're going to approach it. So I think we actually did a clever approach that was very much adjustable. You know, we're like, look, I think $5 is a selling point for this. So this is what you could get for $5. That could yeah. get you to the next level or it gets you a few cheats or it gets you a few uh, sort of cosmetic changes. Then yeah. for 10 bucks, you can get a lot more and, and all that. Then yeah. for 15 bucks, you can get that too. So we just wanted to have an in-game currency yeah. that people can spend, people can trade, people can give each other money. At first, we had a penalty, like a little tax, but then we got rid of that. We're like, no. Well, if someone yeah. wants to spend 100 bucks and get like the premium platinum, or we call it plutonium, package uh, of Friend of Forum Wars, you know, it's right. it's the uh, it's like TIFF yeah. or the, the Royal Ontario Museum. You're like, you can, yeah, if you give us $100,000... You got uh, your name on a plaque. Yeah, yeah. And all the other rewards. So we wanted something like that, and uh, we just want to see what will people spend money on, and then we, we adjust the prices accordingly. Yeah. And I think that is an awesome system, not only because... Uh, it's very customizable. It's also anti-fraud. Like, um, there is no way, like, anyone could play the game without paying us money. Like, we did get chargebacks. We did get people who probably said... Uh, Hey, um, listen. Just, just give me your extra bounty points so I can play this, and I'll, I'll do this for you. You know. So there's probably a, like a there bit was, of bartering. Yeah, I'm sure there's always a little bit. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But the more people playing, the better. Yeah. So that was our, our model. Like, uh, is quite intricate, and I, I would definitely do something along those lines again. Oh, we should have simplified it. Yeah. One huge mistake we made, which was broken in our entire monetization model, was that. First chapter is for free. Second chapter, let's say you pay five, ten bucks. Like yeah. you know, it's adjusted over time, and then you have to complete that to get to the third one, which costs a similar amount. Or you can buy the two as a package and save some money. And I'm like, that doesn't quite work. You're better off with more of a subscription model, or you just say these are standalone. Yeah. If you could have bought mission three before buying mission two. That would have been better because it's a, it's the funnel right. model, you know, like and stuff gets lost. So as a result, very few people have finished the game out of two hundred fifty thousand. I say only maybe five thousand, six thousand have really? finished every single challenge. Yeah, wow. And there, there's a drop off, always a big drop. Well, off. yeah, that's gonna happen in any game, but that is actually a pretty like low percentage of the the total population. I don't know, I don't know enough about like sort of game statistics and stuff as to yeah. what the average is, but it does seem a bit low for sure. And yeah, you I figure that you figure that, it was yeah. because of the, the model. The, the model doesn't help. It's also, you know, some people are just not going to pay for things. And it's big, big it's ass a big game. Ass game. <laughs> yeah, like, it's but, tough uh, to get some. I do think the third chapter game. is by far the best. It's got oh, the yeah. best writing. It's been crowdsourced. It's been, it was pristine. Like, and there's, it's got an ending and all kinds of cool challenges and some really funny stuff, but nevertheless, it's, uh, that's just for the hardcores who are going to fully appreciate that. So, that, that model did not work as well as we would have liked, and that was our mistake. Uh, but, you know, I come from this TV background, and also, I guess, the three-act arc. Yeah. I, I was like, that's what I wanted. I wanted one, two, three, and yeah. then you're done, and then it's all resolved. But gamers don't always give that much of a shit about the story. Yeah, and I mean, the video games are a weird medium in terms of writing, and... I just realized this is the tangent we're going to go down. We're going to talk about how you got into video game writing, but... Um, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, video games are a weird kind of a thing, because there is excellent, excellent video game writing out there. There are some games that are fantastic. 
But then there are also really successful, great games that writing really is an afterthought or not even important, you know? So it's... Yes. It's, it's like, I mean, it's an odd medium in terms of writing because it's not, it's not always an essential component of a good video game. Whereas, say, like a movie or something or, or a TV show, it's really hard to have a good one without good writing, you know? It For has sure. to be, you know, like that, that's a core component. So let's talk, into, talk about that <coughs> because, you know, beyond Forum Wars, which yes. I guess is like your sort of tour de force as a, as a video game project that you've written on, <laughs> yeah. you've also written on some other video games, like you worked on like the Dex Hamilton game, like in yeah, a little bit of that. And uh, what else? What other video games? Well, have you worked I, on? I think last time we talked, I, I told you about how I got into my first game writing scenario. That's right. Like let's let's talk about that a bit, like because uh, you know the thing the thing with video game writing, it's often. Uh, something where you get uh, you get people that are actually programmers or game designers that actually move into the, the, the writing field. I actually asked Neil Druckmann, the guy that wrote yeah. The Last of Us, uh, which, fuck, that's like one of my favorite <laughs> games. I think it was my, my favorite game of last for year. For writing, too. Especially it's for writing. Game. It's, it's I think, maybe the best written game I've ever played. Mm-hmm. Um, but I asked him about that. I was like, you know, I'm curious about, you know, writers getting into, like, are there any professional writers that really get into the field? And what he was telling me, like, Naughty Dog really doesn't. They, they pretty much promote from within, and it's, like, game designers and, and those guys that get the crack at writing, you know, stuff. Um, yeah. And it just happens that him and the other, like, uh, some of the other guys just happen to be multi-talented, brilliant guys. Yeah. Um, but he was saying, like, you know, some, you know, like, some studios do use professional writers. Um, so I'm curious, like, from your experience, how did you jump that, like, from being a writer for television into getting into video game projects? Yeah. I, well, and I'll just preface it by saying I, I haven't worked on any AAA type games. No. I've seen the ads and stuff like that, and uh, I've wanted to, and I've gone to GDC and gone to those writers room kind of meetings where I'm like, oh, these are the game writers, you know? Like, yeah. and uh, it's really tough to get into. It, it helps if you're part of the studio, or if you're if you are a fiction writer, or a or like a tabletop game writer, or a, a script writer, like my man Matt McClellan. Like he. Uh, he uh, just uh, who, like what does Matt McClellan do? Just so Matt McClellan is a, is a TV writer with uh, quite a storied history. Okay. He's done a lot of good shows, um, uh, you know, CanCon. And I remember uh, I I think I pointed him in direction of Ubisoft's ad for a Splinter Cell, basically writer, you know, a yeah. screenwriter. Which that like for like that's the the last game that came out, Splinter Cell Blacklist, right? Yeah, and that was that was done by Ubisoft Toronto. Yes, right, right down the road. Yeah, and um, I think uh, he did an amazing job on it. Like, yeah, uh, I, I haven't played the game yet, unfortunately, but I really want to. It looks amazing, and I played like I mean, those are those are games with a very intricate story. Like they they have all kinds of like it's that spy thriller kind of stuff, which is really cool. So yeah, he'd, he'd be a good guy to interview if you ever want to uh, talk about game writing well, I, or movie writing. Yeah, or well, TV. Let's hope I can get him on. You know, like uh, he's. I'm not gonna speak for him, but uh, he's he's quite approachable, I think. Yeah, well, but he's busy a lot because yeah. he's uh, he's actually in demand, unlike some people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> from from the sounds of things, I don't know how, how true that it, is. It's Christmas time, so we, we all that's have a it. Lot of yeah, time. we're 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 benefiting from the holidays right now. But uh, so yeah, I'll, so I'll just he, give you this little anecdote of uh, my first attempt for real game writing. Although I, 
I think I mentioned last time, like, when I was a kid, I messed around with, like, AppleSoft Basic. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's <laughs> sort of your first your first experience was, you said, text-based games, right? And they're kind of porny. <laughs> porny, yeah. porny text-based games. Yeah, like Leisure Suit Larry. And, Leisure Suit Larry X. Well, yeah, well, what, we were talking about a game before that was, like, a, there was a text-based game that was sort of a precursor to Leisure Suit Larry. Leisure Suit Larry, before it was a point-and-click, was a text adventure called, I don't know, Sex Adventure or something like that. Oh, yeah. It was the exact same story, but... You had to type go east, you know, stuff like that. And it was so good. Yeah. (laughs) It was so good. And uh, I just... I just taught myself how, to, how can I do that? how do you make a room how do you go how do you add a, a loop and this is AppleSoft basic which yeah. is I understand one of the first and last times Apple and Microsoft put out a project together right. called it AppleSoft <laughs> um, yeah. and yeah I made a few things that I wish I had saved onto a floppy disk and I didn't <laughs> Uh, a giant five and a quarter size floppy disk mm-hmm. back in the day. Yeah, so that was just me like messing around because I always like little. I like text yeah. adventure games. And I guess the important thing about doing that and playing around with that when you were a kid is that you kind of got a sense of like the framework of video games, the, the sort of the logic exactly. of it. Because you know it's not the same as writing a linear narrative like for a TV show or for you know like uh, for uh, a film or something. You have to think about choice, right? Yeah. And there's usually, like, not that much to it, but you can make it as complicated as you like. And the cool thing is you can put in Easter eggs and stuff like that, and that was something I always loved. I'm like, I I loved how when you could say something sassy to the uh, to the program, yeah. it'll have a response for you. Yeah. And I, I don't know, probably because I'm a jackass, I'd be like, fuck you. And it'd be like, screw you, too. <laughs> and actually, there's a little text adventure game based on Trapped in the Closet within Form Wars, which yeah. is a bit of an Easter egg. And That's uh, hilarious. What, you mean like R. Kelly's Trapped in the Closet? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> and if you say fuck you into the interface, it'll be like, you can't get me mad. I'm just a computer, dickhead. <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, when I was working at March Entertainment and uh, we had this show, Chili Beach, and a few other things on the go, I was just snooping through our file system system, you know, uh, you know, terabytes worth of stuff. And I found these like really good images that just look like backgrounds. There was, there were layouts for, uh, for scenes that I haven't necessarily seen before. And sometimes they had some objects that were kind of random. Sometimes they had a character in it. Uh, and I was like, if I just gather up all these flash assets, which are, they looked really good. The layout was really nice. I thought, and I just get a programmer to like do a few pointy clicky things. I was really influenced by you know Monkey Island. That was I thought yeah, the like classic ever. like uh, Zach. Yeah, yeah the uh, the classic sort of Lucas Arts. Uh, oh God, Dave huh? the Tentacle. Yeah, like that's that good stuff. Yeah, and I thought maybe maybe uh, I'll get an artist to like you know spruce up a few of these assets and maybe even animate a couple cutscenes. And this will be my little pet project, and we're gonna call it. Beach hunt, like yeah. chili beach beach hunt. Put it on the web, see if it gets us any traction, see if it goes viral because we're on TV. Uh, we're not really doing the webisodes anymore, and you know we have a pretty big newsletter uh, contingent. And so, what what time, like, um, what year was it that you were doing that? I say this was in two thousand seven or something. Wow, see that's that's cool because that's kind of avant garde at the time because now it's not surprising that you know you have TV shows with sort of companion web content. And yeah, it's it's become the norm. But yeah. at that time, that wasn't necessarily all that. Like, you might have a web page for a show, but, like, you know, having yeah. interactive entertainment on there, too, is that was 
kind of progressive. And they wouldn't have they would have games, but uh, and we had lots of games. We actually had like little a Tetris clone using and call it Chili Blocks and a little yeah. word search and all kinds of little games. I want to do something that was. That was for gamers. It's yeah. something that I would have made. So Or would have played, right? Yeah. Like, would have played, yeah. And that, to this day it's one of the best things I ever made, I think. It was uh it was just I made sure that everything was clickable and you every time you try to take something, there's a smart ass answer. Every time you try to give yeah. something to a character, they have about a pool of seven or eight smart ass answers that are, you know, tweet length. Yeah. So it's it's bite-sized and there's a story that makes sense and it's obvious you just got to give this to that guy and then you take the knife and you cut that and you put that on that and you can inspect every object and there's clues in them and you know little game probably takes 15-20 minutes to complete if you're good yeah Uh, I just uh, it was pretty viral a lot of the escape the room type you know game blogs kind of picked up on it and I realized like I think I mentioned this anime before. When I saw that there was a walkthrough printed in, you know, Russian and in Chinese yeah. and stuff, I'm like, yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, like, that's <laughs> a really cool feeling. To know that your little, like, sort of companion game for this TV show took off with not just fans of the show, but fans of the genre. Yes. Of the, of the game genre. Right. To the point where, like, they were writing about it, in, yeah, in Russian and stuff. That's, that's got to be a pretty satisfying feeling. It is, for sure. That's the most... It's and, like good reviews, yeah. You know, just like, uh, just like they always said about Generation X or Generation Y, like we're narcissistic praise junkies. Yeah. I need to get external validation from uh, strangers, yeah, in order to feel like I've done something good. <laughs> Which I think is true of anyone in creative fields, anyway. For I mean, sure. And it's always been that way. I, you know, I defy people to, like, I defy anyone to really argue to the contrary. I think the for the most part, with very few exceptions, people that want to create content. Uh, want to do it so people like it, you know, so yep. people and so people can tell them they like it. Uh, I always kind of get it. Like, I always think it's kind of BS when someone's like, you know, like, I just I just like to write for myself, you know, it's like, yes, that, it, it's that's either bullshit or fucking weird to me, because yeah. it's like if you're committing something to paper or whatever and you don't want to show people and like and you don't want people to enjoy it or get something out of it. It just seems like counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't you just think it? You know, or like, yeah. you know, like, what's the point of crafting, you know, like making that craft? I think most people that say something like that are usually just self conscious about it. It's possible. I mean, that's my, my personal opinion based on you my You do have theory. to be happy with your work and feel like, yeah, I, I did this, but you also need, you also need to know that other people are going to watch it and hopefully enjoy it. Yeah. The beauty of animation or even screenwriting is that, like, if people don't like it, you can only take, like, really a fraction of the blame. Yeah. People might say the script sucked, too. Yeah. And then I'll be like, yeah, but uh, they changed the script. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, the script sucked. You have no idea how many edit- how many people edited it. And that's true. Like, in, in television, um, Terry Saltzman, our mutual friend, a mentor of mine in my program, uh, said, basically, when you write a script for TV, um, if you write the first draft, you're lucky if you have, like, two or three lines that are untouched by the end. At the end, someone, like, you know, someone else's hands are going to be all over it, and it's going to be changed and different. So, yeah, I mean, it's true. You get to sort of, you can kind of pass the buck a bit if someone doesn't like your work yeah. in TV, because you can say, like, look, it wasn't all me. You know, there's other people that were responsible. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Well, I can tell you a bit about uh, the last couple things I worked on that made it to the TV. 
Okay. I don't know if we talk much about that, but, you know, I just wrapped up a, a show for Han Film uh, and also the second season of Mia and Me. Now, Han Film is a Berlin-based company uh, that they worked a lot with March Entertainment, um, okay. which is not around anymore, but uh, so March went under, and I can announce that officially now. But Han Film continued to hire me to uh, finish up these shows. Mia and Me is like a girl's fantasy adventure show that's CG, very beautiful, a lot of unicorns, a lot of fairies. Yeah. A lot of, well, they call them elves because they're not fairies, they're elves. Rainbows. Anyway, uh, it's a beautiful show. It's going to be broadcast for the first time in English on Nickelodeon in the UK. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. And the cool thing about working for, uh, you know, people who don't speak English as a first language, a European company like Han, is that I think they're they're less liable to mess with your words. If they do... They they should have a native speaker do it. Yeah. Uh, you usually don't want someone who's, you know, just saying, like, ah, I'll just say it like this. That's very risky. It happens. Well, yeah. I mean, you're going to get very, like, awkward turns of phrase or something because, you know, if it's not their first language, they may be thinking in terms of, like, just the this, this sort of structure of language that makes more sense, like, say, in German or something like that. And then you're going to have some really awkward lines. So, it does yeah, happen, it's nice. Though. You get a little bit less um, editorial, you know. Yeah. Uh, at least in English. Pressure. I mean, it's yeah. going to be translated into all these languages, and you have no idea how they're saying it. And you don't really care at that point because yeah. it's no longer your words. It's yeah. like I mean, they're your words theoretically, but so when any time something's translated, you're going to lose something. You know, there's going to be an ad- an adaptation. Yeah. So I mean, but if they're a skilled translator, it could be even better than what you intended. That's true. I mean, that's absolutely true. In which case. All the better, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll take credit for that brilliant uh, German uh, turn of phrase. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, uh, that's that's kind of a cool experience about that getting to work with an international sort of project. Um, yeah. So that, how long did that go for? Mia and me, I believe, uh, we took on that project in two thousand and nine. I think originally. So it's been a long time coming since the second season. For all kinds of reasons, but uh, it's a, it was a complicated show. CG plus the live action component that was filmed in Italy. Um, it was an international co-pro. You know, it took a while to get onto air and to sell, and, and then to get onto the next one. But as far as I understand, it's very popular in Europe, cool, and possibly in Asia as well. I will. I'm, it could be on air in North America soon. Well, yeah. I'm I mean, if it's that. going to if it's going to Nickelodeon UK, then it could theoretically go to Nickelodeon in the states. I mean, the only the only thing about that, and it just seems like the nature of North American programming and television is that if it does get here, <coughs> yeah. it'll probably get kind of short shrift, and it won't really get the attention it probably deserves. Yes. Um, <laughs> whatever level of attention that may be, just because uh, international content just often sort of falls to the wayside and yeah. as Canadians like producing content we feel that in a big way with you know our content that's getting broadcast in the states because mm-hmm. you get you know like there are a few shows right. getting made like you know in Canada that are Canadian productions that are aired in the states even now that very good shows they're very good shows uh, and they don't always get the best air times and they don't always get the kind of uh, you know attention that they probably deserve it's true uh, I think like right now the only one I can think of as a international like sorry that's getting international attention that's surprising is probably Orphan Black 
Right. Which is, I mean, that's a really cool show. But it's also, it's like, it's BBC America, I think, that's actually doing it. So, I mean, it's it's kind of a different animal. Yeah. I feel like the, the major networks with Canadian content, they just use it as filler, which is kind of too bad. I mean, you've got, like, something like Flashpoint, which mm-hmm. was, a like, a well-received show and had a decent viewership in the States. It got, like, terrible time slots and stuff like that. And, yeah. Right. But they have a lot of cop procedurals in the, the Oh, yeah. US, right? Well, it's, I mean, it was, I think it was originally on CBS, so it's, like, it's one of their all of their shows are cop procedurals. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's either between a cop procedural or a like military procedural or lawyer um, procedural. Yeah, medical procedural. I don't know. Yeah, but CBS is kind of kind of a one note note network. So I guess yeah. it fit into what they needed, but they didn't really treat it like as a high caliber program. It was more like here's something to fill some some airtime. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, sometimes you're just happy that it. Made well, I mean, it on yeah, it. and I think I think Canada is, it's it's moving in the right direction. I mean, it's. I, I, did you read that article? I can't remember. There was a dude that slammed Canada in the like the golden age of television as being a little bit like we're kind of behind the times, hmm. which I think was a little bit unfair. Um, and I honestly, even if I knew the article, I wouldn't really want to cite it because I I don't really want to draw attention to that because right. I think it's kind of right. BS, and I don't think. I don't think Canadian television needs any more slamming than it's already got in the past few years. Like, yeah. it's like there's there's good content being made right now, and that's the first time I can say that you know in a in a while. Like, it used to be like you'd find the few gems here and there. I mean, like they're uh, really trying. They're really trying, and they're they're getting better at it. Yeah, I mean, CBC is a good example of someone that, like somewhere where. You were talking about how with Chili Beach they were airing The Simpsons, which they were buying. Mm-hmm. Like they're buying like uh, syndicated episodes, like you know, on the cheap to fill airtime because um, it's not a Canadian production, obviously. Yes. But you look at the CBC's uh, like their their um, whatever their schedule now. It's way more Canadian content than it used to be. Oddly enough, right, right. Uh, so I really think that they're trying to make more of an effort at it. Uh, you know, you see right now. With the major networks like CTV and uh, uh, you know Global, they're really trying and City as well. They're trying to air more pilots and stuff like that. One thing I've noticed is a lot of a lot of sitcoms. Like there's a lot of multicam sitcoms happening with Canadian TV, which mm-hmm. I mean that's not winning me over personally. I'm not a big fan of the format, but like right. that's awesome that they're doing it. They have the Canada like has virtually no history even doing that so it's nice that we're even trying to make it yeah it's interesting to see those shows on air yeah I don't tend to watch a lot of them but there's only so many hours in a day that's it I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there that I wish I could be watching that I you know I don't get the chance to just really quickly in terms of as a writer what is the kind of like you know if you have advice for other writers what is stuff that they like what would you call required reading as a writer for television or video games or just Creatively, there are quite a few books that I, I kind of wish I had a little list on me. Uh, there are some really good games, game writing, uh, game writing, not just books, but also like articles you can get online. And as a matter of fact, um, you know what? Just because I didn't quite prepare myself, uh, if you do uh, include my Twitter or some kind of contact, yeah, uh, and anyone is quite interested in some of the resources I think people ought to read or stuff that influenced me, yeah, I'll gladly pass that along. A lot of it's free, like because it's off the web. That's awesome. Yeah, if you've got if you've got sort of some suggestions of stuff that, um, yeah. 
but people can just get for free. Or you, you know, you can also just email it to me, and I can post it with yeah. you know, like annotations for this podcast. But um, uh, but you know, some of the essentials. I mean, story by Robert McKee is, yeah. is you know, and some people consider that a little bit outdated. So you can move on from that paradigm, but I think it's still worth reading. That's actually um, when I was listening to Neil Druckmann talk about him writing The Last of Us. That was his most influential book for for story writing. Yeah. Then there's uh, you know screenplay, which was. Uh, uh, sorry, script writing. I, I had a whole list on my phone. I lost, but anyway, you know what? That's it's Dara okay. Marks. Uh, yeah, look out was, for her. Uh, I remember talking about that. Uh, you know, last time we got together, you said um, you actually went and met her at a conference, like at a yeah. There's a Toronto screenwriting conference. Yeah, and she's done. She has gone a couple years in a row at least, along with Sheldon Bull, who wrote Elephant Bucks. Elephant Bucks is his approach to TV writing. I mean, I mean, he's comes from the old school like you know like the coach days where it was very different but he does have a good hand on his shoulders and a lot of good advice for writers you know you can't go wrong with the hero's journey yeah uh and beyond that like you know honestly the best little piece of uh screenwriting literature i ever got unfortunately is gone but someone (laughs) went to mckee's seminar where he he'll kick you out for chewing gum and so the most impeccable, beautiful, annotated uh, notes, like really clean, and someone got their hands on a photocopied, you know, let's say 80 pages, and it basically condenses his entire philosophy in those 60, 70 pages. So it was like a reader's companion to story that was like just brilliantly done. So you just got that like secondhand from someone that went and like a friend of yours, I guess. Yeah. And then I lent it to someone and you lost it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the lesson. The lesson will be learned here is never lend things to people. Oh yeah. That's, that's always the worst. And you know, it's always so well-intentioned and then, uh, you know, you want to help friends out and then you find out that they're just not necessarily as into the thing as you are. And then you find out that, yeah, they screw I know I'll that never sucks. Get it that, that really maybe sucks. one day I'll find it though, maybe. especially because it's one thing to lend a book or a movie or something, but to have a one a one of a kind set of notes, it might be out there somewhere. So if anyone listening yeah. has uh, has those notes, yeah, if uh, if if that guy that you you lent it to still has them, it's like give them back. Nah, they're jerk. long gone. They're long gone. Nah. I'll tell you, uh, but yeah, that's. I, I'll, I'll send you a couple links too if I uh, if you I remember. Cool. So I mean, of those ones, uh, do you find that like this? That's probably useful in terms of from a structure standpoint. Like I mean, I don't know. My my feeling is that uh, you know you can't really necessarily teach a creative writing or a voice. That's that's like you know that's what everyone has to bring <coughs> to the table. But yeah. That's I guess what you would recommend in terms of just just have that for to, to get started. Yeah. And read screenplays. Yeah. Um. And take a course, like, like take a course, one of these after-school type things, these continued education things. You know, Ryerson, I think George Brown's got it. You're taking Yeah, I'm, I'm taking, uh, well, it's a, like a full-time course at Humber for their TV writing and production, which, yeah, I mean, I, I would recommend highly to anyone who's got, you know, a year to spend and, you know, like 10 grand. Because uh, yes. it's, it's expensive and it's time-consuming, but, man, they really... They really get you on on form, and they also point you in the right direction, which I think that that's one of those things for, you know, an industry like television. Um, you really need to kind of have at least sort of be – you have to know that you need to start talking to people in the industry. You need to network just so you have someone that you can yeah. ask, like, hey, what's – you know, is there any work? You know, it's – 
I think that uh, there's a misconception about television being a place where there's a lot of like it's all glad handing and that everyone just mm. you know um, like will only help out people that they like and everything I don't think that's really true I mean I'm still very neophyte I don't really have that much experience in it but from everything I've gathered it's like people want to help someone that they they know can well it's not even that they want to help they want to bring someone on that they know can do a job. They, yes. Like, they want to have faith that the person they're bringing in they can rely on. Because you can be really fucked if you're not. Like, you know, based on... If you just base it on a reputation and they don't live up to it, you can be left, you know, holding a pretty big ba- uh, bag of shit. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, to me, it's always like when people have asked me for advice or, or have brought up stuff like, dude, I got the best idea for a movie ever. I'm totally going to write the script. And I... If I see someone who is serious about it, who I think has the ability and will do it, I'll give them, I'll spend a long time giving them advice because I want people to you know follow their dreams, but that has to be their dream. Yeah. That has to be something they think they can accomplish and put in the hours because like a lot of things that seem glamorous and are not, like um, voice acting, for instance, uh, yeah. or screenwriting, you know, it, it's not backbreaking labor. Unless you have a really bad posture, which I do. <laughs> in which case, you know, invest in an ergonomic chair. <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, you're going to have to put in a lot of hours. You have to put a lot of, like, frustration and sweat to, to get off the first good draft. So I would say, you know, I, I like to recommend people to take a little course because that will make sure you have a spec script in your pocket. Yeah. And if you, if you don't want to do it that way, at least read a book, read a few scripts, and then uh, and actually, you know, just give it a shot and put it out. Man, I remember when Zoetrope.com, you could get, like, feedback from a... Oh, really? Yeah, it was the American Zoetrope site. I don't know if they still do it, but I did it back in the day. I used to, really? I used to mark up people's scripts and ask for advice on my own, and it was, it was kind of fun. It's, everyone's got a different genre. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm doing a fantasy, I'm doing a soap opera, but if you have a class, you'll make friends, You'll your teacher will will give you specific advice yeah. and it's usually like doesn't cost a lot and you end up with something that could be very valuable that could get you jobs yeah uh, so, I mean that's great advice so yeah anyone that uh, is listening that is interested in the industry and you know following the, the footsteps of uh, the venerable Mike Drack here <laughs> then that's what you gotta do read some books take some classes and you know get yourself out there alright so before we wrap this up let's just talk really quickly about what you're currently working on yeah there's a show some animation writing right there's a show called Numb Chucks that uh, I'm not sure exactly when it's coming out it's um I believe it will be YTV and it's uh it's produced by Nine Story it's actually uh, airing this this coming month in January. Oh, yeah, there so, you go. Uh, you know, fingers crossed, I can actually get this bo- podcast out in the open by that point. It'll probably be on the air by the time that we uh, sweet we po- post this, so you can check that out on YTV where I actually intern. So yeah, I can. I'm actually I'm actually helping writing like promotional content for like you know like our for your own network. Yeah, for <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because like yeah, I'm do interning at, at the Zone there, so right, right. the the PJs on the zone there will actually be plugging that show because it falls in that same time slot they should plug your cast yeah exactly right so i mean yeah that's i've seen some content like there's like teaser online actually from uh, the animation studio that does it looks super funny it looks really, really funny wacky good animation it's got a bit of a run stimpy uh kind of look and feel but it's it's more kids friendly but i wrote on a on a couple scripts and I'm still trying to pitch that last one. I actually heard oh. back something today. So there's a fingers crossed. I'll get one more, <laughs> one um, more picked up a episode. That's yeah. So my nice. name is attached to a couple of them, and you know I'm not sure how they'll turn out, but 
from what I've seen, it's going to be a really great, fun show. And you were saying that it's got kind of a murderer's row of writers from the Toronto area, right? Everyone. Yeah, like so all of like the top talent in the industry, in, in Toronto anyway, is working on this show. Yeah, because they ordered so many episodes. They're shorts, like they're split 11-11. Yeah. yeah, like the... the uh, and they took their time to, to staff up and, you know, do some writer's rooms and to to make sure, like, you know, they only take pitches that they really like. So as a result, it's going to be, I think the voice will be quite variegated. Yeah. You'll see, like, you know, different writers approach um, and there's quite a few editors on it. But just from what I've seen, I think it's going to be awesome. Sweet. So <laughs> people can check that out if, they, if you want to see uh, Mike's work out there or just see a really cool, funny show. Um, and yeah, before we go, let's just get your contact info. So if people want to shout out to you or get yeah. some sweet promos for Forum Wars. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I I can uh, send you some specific content. My name is Mike, and then my last name is D-R-A-C-H. I don't think I'm that hard to find. I mean, you can... If you follow me on Twitter or tweet at me, or from me on Google+, Plus, yeah. it's I actually... It's just at Mike Drack, right? It's at Mike Drack, one word. On Google+, Plus, I have... Plus Mike Drack. Um, I just got that last night. And nice. I reserved it. Um, and, you know, like, if you can't get in touch with me, then you're probably not that great at Googling. Yeah. Don't get in touch with the Mike Drack, who's a personal trainer in Chicago. He's almost as buff as I am and stuff but like that, but, like, he, he, he runs his own business. And he's probably not <laughs> nearly as good a, an animation writer. Yeah. You would assume. Uh, well, what all if right. he was? Cool. <laughs> as it actually happens. But, uh, all right, cool. Well, I'll post that on the comment, like, sort of in the annotations here, so if anyone is interested, you can check that out. It'll also be on the website. Uh, oh, actually, I'll just give my email address as well. I'm oh, sorry. Sure. I just Mike Drack at rogers.com. Come on. That's All easy. Right. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So anyone listening that wants to shout out to Mike, feel free to do so. He's giving you the, the green light. And uh, yeah, man, thanks for coming on. This is a really great uh, podcast. I am very happy to have this opportunity. So thanks so much for coming by my hood. And uh, yeah, it was great chatting with you, man. Yeah. All right, so I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Um, that was our first episode. Uh, we're going to be releasing episodes bi-weekly. So um, in check, is, uh, check out in two weeks, we'll have another episode coming up where we'll be speaking with two web comics, Meg Kearney and uh, Megan Cooper, both super cool. Uh, it'll be a really good interview. Um, and again, if you're interested in any of the stuff we were talking about, notably uh, Forum Wars, uh, Mike's game, you can check that out. It's at Forum Wars, F-O-R-U-M-W-A-R-Z dot com. Uh, and yeah, give him a shout and he might hook you up with some cool freebies. Uh, and as well, uh, again, check the show notes. Um, there'll be all the details there for you. Um, but I hope you enjoyed the podcast and tell all your friends and subscribe and all that cool stuff. And we hope that you'll check out more in the future.